This is Subjects in Process, a podcast where we explore the limits of our knowledge, try to understand things we take for granted, and work to see things from new points of view. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Jeff. Right. So in this uh, episode, I believe we are going to be talking about Derek Delgadio's magic show in and of itself. Yes. And talking about it, but hopefully not talking about it too much. That's right. We will cut out any accidental spoilers in editing, which we normally is very minimal, but in case we spoil, we don't want to. So uh, we're probably going to do a couple episodes. I think so, so yeah. if you're listening to this and you haven't watched it yet, please do. Uh, you can go ahead and watch it uh, or watch it for the next one. It's really great. And yeah. um, I think just touches on a lot of interesting philosophy points as well as interesting life points. I recommended it to my coworkers and uh, one guy uh, got back to me and said, bro, I have not had a more sort of like crazy, meaningful, like that was a, it, the most meaningful experience I've had since the Half-Blood Prince in 2005. The book, right? Yeah, I guess so, course. yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. No, it's- I was um, like, that's it, great. <laughs> yeah, and so it, it ran as an off-Broadway show for uh, something like five or five and a half hundred yeah. um, showings. Yeah. And it's uh, it's Derek Delgadio is uh, known as a great card tr- yeah. smith. I it, don't know what you if, call. If you look him up, like he's there's some amazing um, uh, essays about just his technical prowess and how he's just known for for that in particular. Right. Yeah, um, but he's done other kinds of uh, shows before. I think. Yeah, that are also similarly not your traditional traditional magic show right so yeah what's interesting is in a a little article i read in him talking about it is uh he wanted to make magic into something that revealed rather than concealed right which uh and it's worth noting as well that it's not your traditional magic show right there's a lot of narrative to it and if you're there for just the flash and the pizzazz of the crazy magic tricks, this might not be the one. Just for look you. up David Copperfield or, or something. Exactly, exactly. Or, and so uh, how or long watch is The it? Incredible Burt Wonderstone, which is Ooh. one of my favorite magic movies. Uh, have you seen it? No. Oh, oh, you got to watch it. It's uh, it came out when all of these magic movies were coming out, right? Like it came out slightly after The Prestige. Okay. Around the same time as Now You See Me. Ah. Now you see me as stupid, right? Like <laughs> Ruth and I love it. Like we lo- have you seen that one? I'm not sure it's if I've got, seen that one um, either. It's got Jesse Eisenberg, Woody Harrelson, oh, really? uh, Isla Fisher, uh, I think, and maybe a couple other people. And they play like these magicians who are also like um, doing like bank robberies and stuff like that. Yeah, okay. Um, it's very hokey, but also sort of fun. Daniel Radcliffe is in the, in the sequel. Oh, of course. Um, but The Incredible Burt Wonderstone is actually a very good movie about these aging magicians yeah. who are kind of washed up. It's Steve Buscemi and Steve <gasps> Carroll. 
I and love then, Steve Buscemi. And then they are kind of in opposition to uh, Jim Carrey, who is amazing as this kind of uh, Chris Angel type magician. Yeah. Um, oh, so yeah. highly recommend it. It's very, very, very good. That, um, yeah. that appeals to me a lot. Just as like a quick note on Steve Buscemi, uh, I looked up, I'm interested in making cocktails and uh, there's this trend where you often drop bitters on the top of a sour, which has the egg foam on top. Okay. And so the new thing is you put your bitters into a spray and you make a stencil so that they go on top of the foam and make an image. I have actually had a friend make a, a stencil of Steve Buscemi's face for me so that I can uh, serve my own uh, creation, the cocktail, the Buscemi. I hope you gram that, man. Oh, I definitely, if I, I, I don't, is that how you use the word gram? <laughs> yeah, I know. Do it for sure. the grams. I don't <laughs> Do know. Do it for the gram. I think that's right. Well, although we went, yeah, when we say it, okay. Make sure you get that on Facebook, bro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Snapchat man, that sucker. It's going to be, it's going to be seen by so many people are going to poke me after I put that up on oh, Facebook. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have to be honest, like the only social media that I actually enjoy is LinkedIn and Letterboxd. Yeah. Letterboxd is actually pretty fun. It's a I, film social media. I, I tried to sign up for Twitter, but I have been unable to sign back into my account. Oh. They, I can't seem to make the send me a new password thing work. Uh, so... Oh. I'm not sure why that is. Might have to set and up a then, new. And then I was locked out of my Instagram for a while too, maybe. No, I thought I was locked out of my Instagram because I was confused it with Twitter, but then it turns out I could have been using it anyway, but I haven't. Nice. Okay. Awesome. This so, is so great. <laughs> okay. So in and of itself. Social media feels like magic to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, it feels like, yeah, some 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 kind of magic. It's definitely mysterious. And it actually mysterious. might be the most aligned in terms of the topics of Derek Delgadio's magic oh, show. Oh, interesting. Yes, that's true. There's lots true. of overlap a, there. Um, so let's let's kind of let's jump in a little bit. And before we even talk about his show, I think it's interesting to note that this concept of in and of itself uh, has a lot of resonance throughout the history of philosophy. Yeah, and this notion of what really is a thing? Not a thing as we perceive it, but a thing as it is in and of itself. In and of itself. And uh, so kind of starting right back at the start of the Western tradition of philosophy, we've got the character of Socrates, who we mostly just know through the writings of Plato. But uh, he was a historical figure, they believe, who was actually in the end executed by the state of Athens mm -hmm. for corrupting the youth and for blasphemy. And that was because he went around questioning the common knowledge of, of everybody and was teaching young people that they needed to uh, deeply examine their understanding of things and deeply un uh, work to understand themselves. And he would go to these public uh, places and have discussions with people and mostly revolving around asking them, what is something? Mm -hmm. And the maybe the most famous question is, what is justice? Which, right. again, is a very broad concept for, uh, for the Athenians, for the Greeks. It it's also could be thought of as what is right conduct, but as uh, a fairly 
communitarian society, the the concept of right conduct uh, spread further than just your own individual action and was kind of part of this larger concept of right conduct for a society. And in his conversations with people about what something is, he would uh, repeatedly reveal contradictions within people's own understanding. And he's very famous. He was probably for... very irritating. Yes. Well, so he had the nickname of the gadfly uh, <laughs> because he was just such a pest, which I'm sure is actually literally part of what eventually gets him executed. Yeah. Uh, his his own followers gave him the nickname the midwife because he helped bring forth knowledge for people. Uh, through a painful process. Through a painful process. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And... Uh, and so he would reveal these contradictions in people's ideas and show that their understanding of the concept was not sufficient. And so he would always be examining all these different people's understanding and trying to say, we all have an intuition about what this is and trying to pull out these intuitions and find the thing itself that they all these intuitions were port, uh, pointing at and through dialogue be able to cut away the mistakes in their intuitions or understanding in order mm -hmm. to actually get to the thing that was in and of itself. Mm -hmm. He uh, he generally described people. He said that um, this, the story goes, he went to the Oracle of Delphi to ask uh, who was the wisest person and uh, or somebody else did perhaps. And then they said that Socrates was the wisest person. And then this person came and told Socrates, the Oracle said, you're the wisest person. And he said, how can that be? Because I don't know anything. Right. And so he then marches off in search of people who know and starts mm -hmm. talking to people and uh, just continually finds out that in fact, there's only people who think they know. Mm -hmm. And in fact, their ideas are flawed and inconsistent and uh, they should and make a, a fairy tale retelling of that because it sounds so much like um you know who's the fairest of them all yeah totally but instead yeah. it would be like you know who's the wisest of them all i Just mean disney could do this right Reuse yeah absolutely characters from I mean, hercules and i would watch it yeah unfortunately i I, I mean i would pay the 30 dollars on the pre-release oh yeah um but then you know nobody it would not do very well i yeah. i i remember there was a showing of a documentary on a, a bunch of philosophers and i was very excited about it coming out and i bought it was being shown of course at like the z the the ziedler hall theater yeah. downtown and uh, and I, so I bought these advanced tickets. I, or, or maybe even went and lined up super early and I got a bunch of my friends to come because I was super afraid that it was going to be sold out and that, uh, I wasn't going to be able to get in. And then of course we were the only ones there. Right. <laughs> right. So it turns out Disney probably won't do it. They probably, if know. it's not packaged like the matrix, you know, philosophy is yes. a hard sell. Yes, I mean, I even wonder if this could be packaged like the Matrix, but yes, this someone's is... trying to kill Socrates. Oh man, see, in oh. a world where someone's trying to kill Socrates, I mean, I, I, that this is the problem. My intuition says this is a great idea, right? Yeah. I think yes, that sounds super exciting, and immediately I'm just ready to to make this movie and to go and watch it. But yeah. I just, I have learned my intuitions, like Russell Crowe as Socrates, that would be good. Kind of older, 
Yes. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, Um, I've taken us off topic, but this, I think I will, uh, let's develop it. Okay. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's do a little more riffing uh, once we've got some time. So, so this is, so this is Socrates's in and of itself. And then uh, Plato carries on that tradition and he he's again they're looking at all of these different um intuitions of an idea right and everybody's got these different ones and you know even you could talk about the idea of a tree right what is a tree right and when you're trying to define it you always run into these problems because something that's true right so a dog a dog is you know a four-legged creature with a tail that barks right right but then what about if you have a three-legged dog is that no longer a dog anyway that's a yeah a simple example of the sorts of issues that they were very good at revealing so they uh, came to the conclusion that the thing in and of itself was actually the abstract notion and that uh it's called the theory of the forms and so the the most real world was actually these forms and everything that we experience are just imperfect copies yeah. of these forms and that's so the, it, is that um related to the myth of the cave then absolutely yeah so uh, should i for anyone who doesn't know i the think myth it's, of the it's cave, worthwhile yeah 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 so the the myth of the cave is this story that plato tells to try and illustrate this point and uh there's all these people who are actually chained inside a cave and their back is to the entrance of the cave and they are looking at the shadows of things the silhouettes as they pass along this wall uh, and this is what they believe the entire world to be they've only ever seen the 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 shadow play being cast on this wall and one of them manages to escape Uh, his chains and he actually exits the cave and suddenly sees all these objects for real and uh, and realizes that they've just been all looking at the shadows of these objects and then it even goes so further to see the sun itself which is the source of the light that reveals all of these things yeah and uh and he actually goes back into the cave to reveal his news and he is then um uh, beaten and uh, even killed by the people in the chains who are uh, upset by this questioning of their reality. And so it's He's the, the philosopher story of, too, right? W- the witch? He's the philosopher. He's the philosopher. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's, it's very much uh, a story in a lot of Plato's texts. If you read between the lines, there are uh, warnings to philosophers. And in, in that time, philosophy was not such a narrow tradition. You know, mathematics was a form of philosophy at the time, right? right. Anybody who uh, sat around thinking, which the Athenians did a lot, uh, yeah. unfortunately, because they, they had a lot of slaves, kind of made that possible. That's how they were able to do that, yes. Yeah. But um, the the story is is a warning to philosophers and and plato was very concerned of course because his mentor socrates had been killed mm-hmm. by the state uh and so that's this the philosopher is the person who is relentless in their pursuit of the real essence of something in and of itself yeah and that, and just as a side note you know the for people familiar with kind of christian theology right there's a reason like Plato is extremely important 
to the theological lots of theological traditions and you know people would say too that that the ideas that paul is exploring and and even you know early church fathers and that sort of thing have a mm-hmm. lot of they're drawing a lot on uh, platonic notions about um you know the that the real life is somehow absent and it turns into sometimes it turns into things that are more like gnosticism right but that somehow this idea that what we see in the world is an appearance um and whether it's good or bad like if it's if you yeah. see the the world of appearances as bad then you are kind of moving into gnosticism but if you see the world as appearances which are not the exact not identical with reality then you're drawing you're working within a platonic lineage yeah um, and it, it's quite interesting because there are there as you go through uh the history of philosophy, the some people who believe themselves to be working against the Platonic lineage actually end up being people suggest, no, that's actually more Platonic than anything else is, right? So the conclusion right. of this is uh, Heidegger says that existentialists are the conclusion of Platonism mm-hmm. because uh, existentialists say existence precedes essence, right? So there is a thing in this world, but it has no no essence to it at all. And the existentialist says it is our, our decision-making in terms of how we define and imbue meaning into objects uh, so we, a chair is just a lump of stuff, but then we imbue it with its chairness, mm. right? Mm. And that the it's this uh, concept of chairness that we access through our recollection of the that forms. Heidegger. What a yeah. guy, eh? Right, and because, so and because like the the I guess you know the the majority of people would say oh well no platonism is essentialism right right like, pl- yes, platonism yes, yes. is like yeah there is no chair there's just chairness and then yes. there's instantiations of chairs mm-hmm. uh, that are like lesser um, yeah i was in a band with our mutual friend matt weeb uh called uh imitators of the third kind yes. because if uh i think it, what is it poets are imitators of the third kind is that that sound right to you because poets are if you have yeah. the, the the form right the true form yep. there's yep. an imitation which is sort of the object in reality or in what we would say see as reality yep is that correct and then and then a an, uh it kind of there's multiple right. so emanations of that of that uh original thing and they're just imitations all the way back so when you get to the poet who Plato was a poet, but hated them, yeah, uh, right. You're just someone who's writing about a chair. <laughs> They're kind of right. Like, but the chair, the chair, the chair is just, uh, just a imitation or, you know, is, uh, of the real form. And then as a poet, you're writing about this imitation. Yes. Now I kind of, I, I was thinking I would want to follow up a little bit with, talking about aristotle yes, but the totally. problem is there's but there's so many little trains here right so because the poet um who might be important to talk about if we get to barfield right so the poet is diving into these uh these impressions that we have these shadows he is 
revealing their significance and yep. their their import. And Nietzsche, uh, he retells the story of the cave, right? Mm. And he says uh, that that in fact what we should be doing is digging deeper into the cave. This is our experience, and this is what is. Um, meaningful and deep and rich and true for us right and right um and so there's there it's interesting in two ways so i guess going back to aristotle right so aristotle uh potentially plato's greatest likely plato's greatest student ended mm-hmm. up very much disagreeing and rejecting plato's teaching mm-hmm. and saying no if the forms are not the things out there, what we actually have are the instantiations of each chair in front of us. And he said, uh, and in many ways, so Jeff, we've talked a bit about how he uh, foreshadows or is the father of modern science. And right. we think of him as being analytical, but it's interesting too, because he also gives us the parallel to the poet, right? Who mm. says, no, stop seeking this form out there and dig into your own world and seek its own um, its own richness in in the here and now. And yes. So is that is that going back to the in and of itself and how and how Aristotle might see the in and of itself versus Plato? Is yeah. that where the difference between like I I don't know when I was reminded of this or maybe learned it for the first time relatively recently that plate platonism is realism like realism when you talk about realism you're talking about being in the lineage of of plato i i think and then whereas aristotle is sort of uh nominalism well so it's interesting because they were so they were both on they both were opposed to each other but the the key they their more important purpose in life was to oppose the sophists right so what's just interesting to or important to note is that they were both uh, opposed to um total cynicism Right. Mm-hmm. So there's like a degree of skepticism that they all promoted in terms of their typical notions of ideas. Unexamined saying, life, that kind of thing. Yeah, ex- exactly. But then when skepticism turned to cynicism, uh, saying we can't, uh, we, we don't even believe the pursuit of that is worthwhile, yeah. and then actually moves to relativism, right? Mm-hmm. And relativism saying it just is what it is for you. And then the the slide from relativism into nihilism. Right. And so the sophists were these people who uh, studied logic just like Socrates and Plato did. And yeah. they studied the world and they studied rhetoric and the art of persuasion, but ultimately all for the purpose of your own gratification. They did not believe in any morality bigger than yourself. And right. they were actually gaining significant power in Athens in the elite amongst the elite families where they mm. were being paid to train their children. And so a large part of Plato, what he was doing was uh, attempting to find a truth that was solid, that could uh serve as a foundation for a stable and good society. Right. And he believed there was the great risk uh, amongst the sophists. And so with 
Aristotle, Aristotle is also opposed to the sophists saying there is a truth there. And so with the nominalists versus the realists, I think that is true. Um, uh, but the nominalists, I think there's kind of different ways of describing them. So there's, so the, the, the realists believe in an essence of things right. or of, in and real yeah. the real well, which is and a it, forms i guess for plato exactly right and, and so, so it could be different things depending yeah. on on who. i get i guess this part you've actually led us into maybe a little bit of technical subject matter in terms of another ancient and ongoing discussion in philosophy is the notion of the universal and the particular right, right? and so the uh we have many particular chairs and then we have the universal uh of the chairness right and so the nominalists are the ones who are saying chairness is not uh is not real does not have an essence right right each individual chair is a thing and then chairness is a mental construct uh, right. that is that is less derives is, from the individual chairness the exactly. chairs that we encounter Whereas, whereas the Plato believed beauty to be a thing, right? Yes. And uh, there's some discussion about uh, linguistic determinism because in the Greek, the the way they would refer to even adjectives would be the beauty, right? And so there's a lot of treating words or concepts. Uh, similarly to objects in their right. language. And I mean, Aristotle used the same language, so it's not as though it it totally determined your thought. But when you're speaking with everybody about justice, then it becomes this idea of um, that justice itself is a thing with a true nature and right. not just uh, a mental construct that describes the instantiations of justice. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, okay, go ahead. Sorry. I read I read an interesting art essay recently by Ivan Illich. Yeah. Um, that was about he kind of does this very brief history of philosophy in like three pages, where he talks about the movement from kind of the the mythological uh, worldview that sees uh, you know the divine right. It's yes, de right, deities right. and things yes. like that. Yeah. And with the philosophical turn, you move to these deities. And he he says, and I don't know where he's getting this from, but it seems interesting. Uh, he says, you know, the philosophers are turning away from deities partly out of kind of a, um, you know, we shouldn't look at that. We don't, you know, don't look at the divine. Uh, yeah. We turn and we turn these things into uh, ideas instead of uh, gods. Yeah. Right. And so you're, you're moving from looking at beauty as Aphrodite or whatever, you know, or mm -hmm. maybe a lot, mm -hmm. a lot of these concepts actually have our divinities. And yeah. then you turn to seeing them as more like ideas. Yeah. Uh, and then you start, it's sort of like pr proceeds from there um, yeah. and become, you kind of are becoming more and more, removed from the idea that this thing exists outside as, right. as a, as a thing, you know, in the universe or um, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, or, and even has like, it's um, uh, 
it's its import maybe especially is is kind of reduced from it it's yeah. uh, it's something to be dissected not something to be uh experienced or in to be in relationship with or to be um in awe of right it's it, it, you know. would would an early greek thinker be able to think beauty is in the eye of the beholder well the sophists did right 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 yes no so and, so, and that's, right so back, that's yeah. the big pushback that i guess yeah those guys are are having yeah and and it's it's interesting to think of uh instead of just on the the spectrum i think it's really helpful to realize how complicated the in and of itself is mm -hmm. with those three um not treating it as dipolar like if you yeah. only have the sophists and plato it looks a certain way only aristotle and plato yeah. uh, only aristotle and the sophists it looks a certain way yeah. and then um because so when i think about uh plato and I don't, I don't think, so my question is, what does it mean for something to be real? And I don't want to question the realness. I love the idea of the poet, right? Who is digging in to seeing the, the realness of this. Yes. And so I had this question that I'm asking is, how did Plato have so many uh, insights and uh, despite the fact that his ontology to me seems like quite wrong. But when you think about uh, the process of asking what is justice, and this is a, a maybe he's confusing a concept with a physically existing thing or something, right? But he's what he is doing is he's uh, examining every instantiation, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, so he's refining a concept that is useful and meaningful and important. And when there are contradictions, I think that might suggest, I mean, maybe we're not uh, talking about forms, but we are revealing potentially mistakes in our own understanding. And when we're talking about all these instantiations or even with justice, people's intuitions about what justice is, when you think about how we learn about the world through our uh, embeddedness and our experience of it, mm -hmm. uh, then you're, you're drawing out the wisdom and insight from every person, right? And at the same time as ensuring using logic to say, uh, to see where maybe we've um, gone too far or made a mistake in our extrapolation from our, mm -hmm. uh, from our experiences. So Aristotle then says, no, not the forms out there. I want to study the things that are. And he does uh, a lot more rigorous observation of the mm -hmm. world. He works through things uh, not so much in dialogue with others as just through uh, the application of logic and observation. And, yeah. and then he, he did, oh. sets the tone for the next 
thousand years, more than well, thousand years, basically, like in terms of like our understanding of science and yeah. I mean, I would is, love, I would love to talk about both of them because I do. I think that it's uh, they these things are more intertwined than we recognize, right? Just like with uh existentialists suddenly heidegger flips your understanding of it on its head right. and i think there um those two things are probably this uh the abstraction and the um what's the opposite of abstraction you know this concrete uh, yeah the concrete and the abstract are always uh working together even when you're like when you're focused on one you're always going to still be using the other and there's going to be this back and forth is um would part of Aristotle's uh, view of the in and of itself relate to his emphasis on uh, telos, right? Yeah. So, oh, that's yeah, that's super interesting because that is not uh, in line with our modern science. No, his no, no. Of telos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so he he his he had four notions of causality. And I'm only going to be able to remember our modern one and Telos because those are the two that have been that I'm kind of more Carried familiar forward. with. Yeah. Uh, but there are there he has four notions of causality. And so one of them is like, oh, yeah, it was, you know, pushed by these physical effects in the world. You know, just the way we think of pool balls on a pool table bouncing around. Yeah. Um, but his other notion of cause, which he actually saw as more important, was Telos or purpose is that right yeah um yeah it's and, like the final purpose and it's yes. and the way to think of it i think if i remember is mm -hmm. like um something the, the thing it becomes what it sh ought to have been right and it's yeah. in its in the even in the seed right a seed mm -hmm. contains the purpose its purpose which is to become the tree yes right uh yeah. and it's interesting uh I, and I did a little bit of work on this when I was doing my PhD, but uh, even in like the romantic period in the kind of eight, 18th and 19th centuries mm -hmm. in Germany, in Europe, um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> people were trying to kind of figure out, is there, is there maybe more here that we need to unpack, right? And this sort mm -hmm. of organicism as a, as a movement of thought, um, people like uh, Goethe, for example, and... Um, uh, I think Schelling, Friedrich Schelling also, um, they were all very interested in this idea of like, there being like, what's the, what makes things become what they're supposed to be. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and so, which is something well, that we, we sort of, I guess have with DNA nowadays. Yeah. So I, I mean, so, uh, when I think about like, no wonder Aristotle could not get past that notion and getting past, let me use tentatively that term, but the complexity of physical causes in this world was obviously so far beyond him, right? I mean, uh, I was reading something recently about how uh, simplistic Darwin's ideas were, right? He didn't even, he did not have the concept of DNA, the way right. we do yeah. and the complexity of what's going on through this process of natural selection and mutation and is, is still like, is still something that we see 
very yeah. vaguely, right? Yes. And we continue to investigate. I actually just recently watched almost like one of the most beautiful YouTube videos I felt like I'd seen in a while. And it was um, this team that was working on a new device for imaging cells. Oh, cool. And so they they have this picture of the cell as we'd seen it, which uh, has the kind of this shell, this dividing barrier, and then a little bit of like a, a nucleus inside it where it's got the information for replicating itself that with the RNA and the DNA, but it's mostly just looks like an egg, right? The right. white and the yolk. And then this with this new software or this new technology, they dive into it. And what? it is just like, I mean, it looks like just like a a mass, a universe of right. um, interconnected, all this yes. stuff. And it's... Um, Have you ever read The Wind in the Door or A Wind in the Door? It's by no. Madeleine Long. No. It, it's the sequel to uh, A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, wow. Okay. And it's yep. very cool because, you know, if A Wrinkle in Time is focused on time and like, yeah. you know, and... And I guess it's focused on space also because mm -hmm. it's about like moving between dimensions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a, a Wind in the Door is uh, about space and very much about like, it's partly about like becoming very small. And so it starts to try to imagine the inner life of a cell. Mm. Uh, and very interesting. like key characters in the cell are these farandolas, I think it's called. It's like within a mitochondria. Yeah. Okay. There are these things that, I mean, Madeline allow Longo, you to manipulate the force. Well, it, it's it's it's. I think it's all kind. It's pretty scientifically based. Yeah. Okay. Like not not a not sorry not midichlorians. Oh, sorry, my my mitochondria, bad. which are that's I think what's the line you learn in biology? It's like the that's the engine of the cell or something like right. that. Yes. Um, yes. But I mean, Madeline Long was so interesting because she was so interested in theology but also so so interested in science yeah. and so is always trying to explore the the meaningfulness of mm -hmm. of these mm -hmm. the complexity right that yeah that idea of uh existence being irreducibly complex yeah uh, how what does that mean for humans right yes well and that's yeah so that the irreducible complexity of it this um the comes back to aristotle not being able to get past this notion that a seed somehow what what's driving it appears to be the future which is funny because that starts to sound like the form of the tree is right, right. uh is somehow the the telos is uh, sounds platonic, right? Right. Yeah. It's not in those objects. And there's a myth that is probably not accurate. So um, he studied under Plato and then he actually went and became the tutor of Peter the Great. Who, uh, Alexander Peter the, the Great. Great. Alexander yeah. the Great. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Who, uh, who then conquered the world. But in his later days, he moved down to either Southern Greece, maybe even Sicily, and was he got really into nature and was just doing like a lot of kind of biology, science, ecology yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, but the myth goes that he he spent the last very many years of his life sitting and studying the currents in the channel um, oh, of the Mediterranean because the Mediterranean is actually um, famously lacking in currents. So they wouldn't have had a lot of experience of these currents, but then in this little 
uh, channel area, yes. the currents suddenly become there's tons of them and they're constantly changing right and this is very much an example of what we know of or at least for me these are the parts of uh, science and nature the the chaos theory is something right. i'm super interested in yeah and it's a uh, heraclitean right like yes and, and well, that's yes. that's interesting because Her is heraclitus pre-socratic yes. yes um you know he's the guy who pocahontas you know, the Disney movie Pocahontas gets the line, you can't step step into the same river twice. Yes. The yes. water's always changing, always flowing. Yeah. That comes well, from Heraclitus. <laughs> well, and Heraclitus was one of the biggest influences on Plato, right? And mm. so uh, Heraclitus showed how, talked a lot about how uh, the world is... Uh, is constantly in motion and yes. the any appearance of stability is just two uh, two forces in tension for a time right and uh, and he so when that played a large role in one creating the skepticism and cynicism of the sophists who, right right uh, as the greeks explored and found other cultures with different moralities which were just shocking to them yes uh they they came to disbelieve in any truth and that led plato to then uh say okay heraclitus is clearly right about the world that we see which is why we need to posit this other world so he was also very influenced by pythagoras and mathematics which discovered these right. um, unchanging yeah. eternal truths right like the, the the mathematical formulation of a circle right we only see imperfect circles in the world right but mathematically we can define the form of a circle that right. is true in an eternal way in a in in a and true in a way that anything we see in the world never could be. Okay, this is insane. This is I love where this is going, uh, or where this has gone. Because <laughs> uh, so a couple things come to mind. First of all, isn't that amazing? <clears throat> like there is no new thing <laughs> under yes, the sun, absolutely. right? Like that same yeah. movement of like discovering other cultures and then suddenly being like, oh crap, nothing's real, <laughs> nothing's true. Like yeah. that's exactly what happened has happened in the last like. 150 years you yeah. know as globalism yeah. has mm -hmm. occurred right and then suddenly mm -hmm. this sort of long christian uh history right of people yeah. being like this is the way things are and and then it's like oh my goodness there's like people who have totally different ideas what <laughs> yeah, do we do yeah, totally. nothing's real oh my goodness you know like yeah well, and, and even and you could even maybe we could talk about in the last 20 years where right? we all lived in our own bubbles and had access to the clearly defined media sources that yes. told us exactly what was yeah. true and then suddenly we realized oh things you know uh i have suddenly learned about a lot of other people whose experience is not like mine and, um, and i don't and, know what to do with that yeah and yeah exactly and like ho holy shit, i was <sighs> wrong about a lot of stuff which right. literally has been like that's a human my, that experience. Is, that, my personal experience has been like that, right? Yeah. Like that oh, is, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's yeah. uh have you ever read the there's a Gerard Manley Hopkins poem called uh that nature is a Heraclitean fire and the comfort of the resurrection? It's my favorite oh my. poem, one of my favorite poems by him. And I oh, won't read it, but I will put it in the show notes because good. it's in one of his insane poems where it's just like like sound effects, basically, right? Like yeah. he's trying to give this 
the experience of encountering nature as this Heraclitean fire, right? Where things are just like changing and that kind of thing. And then he gets to uh, the point of the resurrection Mm -hmm. and sort of draws this, he's doing something similar to what Plato's trying to do, right? Where he's Mm -hmm. saying he's locating in the resurrection of Jesus, this, what he calls an immortal diamond. Mm -hmm. And in Jesus resurrection, I finally, I find some kind of stability in the Mm -hmm. midst of the Heraclitean fire that is nature. Right. Uh, Right. Anyways, it's a really interesting poem for all sorts of reasons, but. Yeah. I mean, that makes me want to kind of like, I'm not sure if it's going too far afield, but I find it interesting in the notion of, of Jesus's resurrection. Right. So it's very often studied as, as a, abstract concept or a universal right very like like socrates you know all these different uh people with their diverse understandings are continually in dialogue with each other about um the meaning of jesus and his death and his resurrection and they're uh you know questioning each other's trying to gain the intuitions of this person's understanding and yeah uh, but then i remember like just this idea I had in my head is, so what if you go to somebody who's had very little contact with the West and they had a story uh, that was like an exact parallel of the story of Jesus, except that it was physically instantiated in a different place and time. So it wasn't, right. it wasn't um, Jesus in Israel 2000 years ago. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, somebody else. And so then, and just the question of, is it the particular, right? Is it, is it this instantiation or is it this idea? Right. Yeah. And so, and, and that's uh, a, that's Carl Bart, right? His, his uh, claim about the resurrection is that it's the scandal of particularity. It's the mm, reason why mm. it, when you get into it, it's such an offensive idea to yeah. say that this person, one person's, uh, you know, resurrection, this event that happened mm-hmm. in historical time, mm-hmm. right? Like um, his big critique of a lot of the uh, 19th century uh, liberal theologies of mm-hmm. in Germany at the time, right? Was that they were trying to move this into more of a universal kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. instead he says, no, the, the scandal of the particularity of this event mm-hmm. is uh, what also shows it's, it's um, for him, I think it shows the divinity of it, right? right. Like the idea, we want a universal, mm-hmm. right? We want to do the Plato move and just say like, okay, no, there's this like, there's chairness right mm-hmm. chairness is the the direction we want to go because somehow that just allows us to iron out the problems of individual chairs mm-hmm. and I, I i like the idea you know whatever we think theologically about it i like the idea of saying to dwell with the givenness of an event see yeah see and yeah exactly like i feel very torn on that because because yeah. the other question is like uh is is any particular uh, significant outside of its relation to to everything else, right? So, like when as soon as you talk about the significance of 
a particular of a of one particularity you're starting to talk about it how it fits in within this context for and sure. in relation with all these things for sure and then and that uh the description of that relationship is is can be abstracted you could have another particularity with those relations uh, really i think isn't isn't the fact that it's a particularity that's yeah. the thing that makes those relations actually meaningful. Like, you know, one of the, there's a book by, and we can move on from just the resurrection, but like the thing that yeah. uh, N.T. Wright says, he has a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Mm -hmm. And one of his things was, it's like, we have a lot of stories of yeah. resurrection, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's the myth of Osiris yeah. and there's things like that, right? Um, and he says, what's interesting is that when you dig into the actual differences between mm -hmm. these particular mm -hmm. stories yeah. that's when you start to see the that the the implications of these different stories uh differ as well right like yes. so something like the idea for him what he's wanting to talk about is like the idea of life after life after death mm -hmm. you know that there there were these ideas of somehow um mm -hmm. you know people dying and then being brought back to life as kind of like this this sort of spiritual you know yeah. a spiritual coming yeah. back to life kind of yeah. thing or someone re resuscitated in some way and now they're like a an undead kind of person there's mm -hmm. all these sorts of stories the thing that was not at all contemplated in any of these different contexts was this idea of a life that is sort mm -hmm. of very material and also uh, yeah. post-death and yes. also not undead, right? Like, yes, but, and I guess, so I, it may be the case that no two particularities are ever the same. Right. Right. But in uh, as a, as maybe a, a counter example is just the fact that for, um, physicists, these uh, on the objects on the tiniest level, electrons, etc., are there. There is. There's no. There's no difference between them. Right. There's no characteristic. Uh, I guess other than their relation uh, to other other particulars. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be? I mean, yes, and the and their position in space and time. But the but then okay. So to take that further is the the description, the mathematical description of a circle, right? So, right. Um, that's just to say that whether or not it ever actually happens, one could imagine two identical particulars. It's interesting. I don't understand how how you can, but but the reason yeah. being, I can understand two identical particulars in a vacuum, yeah. but like the the thing that, and this is why right. I I find, yeah, I, even though I like want to like Plato better, yeah. Uh, although I have, if you ever want to read a really great novel about Aristotle, mm -hmm. wonderful novel called the Gold the Golden Mean, um, it's is by, it, is it's it by a Canadian author. Is it the one about his like significantly talks about his time with uh, Alexander the Great? I can't remember. It's been mm. so long since I read it. Uh, it's um, and I can't even remember the name of the author. I'm so bummed out. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. I think I might have read it. Um, uh, there's a uh, sequel to it as well. Oh, is there? Yeah, I would love the, if there's a sequel. I'm excited about that. I remember reading it and enjoying it. I mean, it just um, obviously is like a nerdy philosophy buff. I was kind of into it, and you know, this there's just lots of uh, tensions between the 
his role as a tutor of Alexander the Great. Um, it's very uh, historically embedded too. Like, yes. And I love that it was written by a Canadian because I feel like yeah. Canadian authors tend to have to write about like Canada. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so this person's just like, nope, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So I will, I will acknowledge that no two particulars can ever be identical. But the question is, is when you start to define their relationship to things around them, right? And some of those are going to be particularly meaningful, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, is every is every fact of that, right? So I guess the question would be, and, and I'll just say, I like using the example of Jesus because it includes this notion of the particular. It includes this notion of the universal. And then um, even if you are not religious, I don't know how easy it would be for non-religious people to connect to this idea. But for me, it also represents the idea of meaningfulness and significance, right? So the idea of the universal and the particular and the meaningful, right, mm -hmm. kind of come together in this notion. And because mm -hmm. we use universals or abstraction in our understanding of what's important, right? So we could say family is important, right? right? And then we could, but then we want to, in my life, my family is right. important, right? So there's the universal, which is family, is the particular, yeah. which is my family. And then yeah. there's the acknowledgement that this is important. Yes. And um, so the, I guess there's lots of ways that we could talk about that. And if we were more familiar with other religious traditions, they could probably provide important examples. Sure, but, for sure. Um, well, and even as, I suppose, like the thing about Jesus is that, you know, I we just, so every every Easter, yeah. And we're recording this just after Easter. Uh, right. uh, we watch Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. Um, and next year, just so yeah. everybody knows, and I'm just announcing this now, hopefully everyone will be vaccinated and we can <sighs> do, this is going to be the 10, 10 year anniversary of Luke and I and Ruth watching um, Jesus Christ Superstar on Good Friday. Yeah. So we are going to have a big shindig, cosplay, come dressed up as your favorite, uh, you know, whatever 70s yes. person <laughs> yeah but my my co-worker was saying the problem is that there's for for men there's a lack of shirts in uh jesus mm. christ superstar but right. uh, uh so anyways uh jesus christ superstar the thing about it is that it is such a reflection on this idea of the humanity of jesus yeah right which is the yep. particularity of jesus Absolutely. i think right um yes. and and I, and I love it, right? Like I love yes. this idea of it because it's just suddenly you get into the in inner life of yes. of this person that when you read it, read about Jesus in the Gospels, you often don't have as much access to, yeah. right? Like the person in in the Gospels, you can hear some of this inner life in moments of frustration or whatever, mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily get to the like doubt, right? You yeah. get to the doubt at Gethsemane, for example, or something yes. like that. But yeah. um, and then on the flip side. Right. You have this idea of Jesus, the Christ as the son of God. Yeah. Right. And the son of God, you suddenly start to be moving into this, like for sure, transcendent, if not uh, maybe universal is the wrong word, but it, it you're, you're moving into abstraction because you're moving into a realm where it's hard to actually know what you're talking about. Yes. Um, you know, the divine. What's yes. the divine, right? Like, yes. And, and I mean, and, and for me, this is very important as well. And 
it's interesting how as these tiny little people living in a big complex world, a big complex universe, the the question about the particularity is essential in terms of the choices that we make, right? As yeah. uh, tiny little people, every choice we make is a choice for one thing and a choice against something else. And there's a, I guess I think of the notion of it's easy for us to value uh, potential, right? So when we see someone who is this young, beautiful, smart person, and they have so much potential, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, who's the guy? No, not Eli Weasel. He's an he's um, and uh, not who's the Freud's Jung? Jung. He's a Jungian, and he writes Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, Viktor and Frankl. Viktor Frankl. Thank you. So uh, in which is a great book. I recommend everybody read it. And I've he never gives, read it. He gives this um, this idea of something to help people with practical decision making in their life. And the he just says, imagine yourself on your deathbed and think about looking back on your life. What decision will you be glad that you have made? Huh. And it's not perfect, but he really he tries to highlight that uh, that potential is actually the absence of actuality. Yes. And so young people have so much potential, but old people are the only people who've actually lived. Yes. And, yes. and as a young person who at one point I was a young person with potential, right. right? And so much of my potential was lost because I was afraid of making a choice yeah. for oh something. Goodness. And so yeah. the so the 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 particularity of our existence I think is something that we would do well to to think about right yeah. and to to realize that we are only who we are in this moment in this time and the universals yeah. are tools but at the same time they're almost they're kind of nothing you know right <laughs> the yeah. the particularity is the here and now and uh and the and yeah oh oh i was just gonna say the the thing it makes me think of is um do you know i don't know how you say his name solon solon he's uh, like the, the the law he's like a lawgiver from ancient something egypt i don't know no greece? no uh, greece, he's greek. greece. Uh, yeah he's he's athenian yeah athenian okay so yeah. so uh this book by one, my external examiner for my phd yeah. Uh, called Morning Happiness. Mm -hmm. And in it, he opens with the line from Solon, which is, call no man happy until he is dead. Oh my goodness. I which, knew that quote and I love it, but I never knew it was, I never knew that Solon. I thought, yeah. That's and it's, I don't, is Solon maybe pre-Socratic as well? Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Okay. So he, um, he's credited with um, being potentially the first person to set down the guidelines that were used to uh, define Athenian political structure in oh, their most democratic and golden age. Oh, okay. Recognizing democracy, of course, is on a spectrum. So good yeah. on them for getting started. Too yeah. bad they didn't get further. <laughs> yeah, not, did not move far enough. But <laughs> did not move far enough. The, the, the thing I love about that line is that 
it is first of all something yes. that can only you can only be know if you are happy in your life by what people say after you die right, right. as a result of your whole life yes. the, all of the particularities of your life yes. right are assessed yep. by your community and they tell you whether you're happy and it's such a flip from the way that we think about happiness now yes. which is often as potentiality yes am i as happy as i could be right am i yeah. is my life as good as it could be yeah uh rather than sort of seeing the particularities like i mean they often talk about this even just in terms of dealing with depression right mm -hmm. and anxiety a mm -hmm. lot of it a lot of the way to, to battle those things is by living you know being in the moment right yeah. mindfulness yeah. uh you know being grateful yeah. you know recognizing the individual things that we do that yeah. that that are happening in reality as opposed to being drawn out into the abstract yeah um, and i mean and it's interesting like so when you, uh, you so you can be drawn out into the abstract and even so for my experience of depression the worst part about depression is uh the guilt and shame and depression that you have when you judge yourself for being yes. depressed yes right? yes exactly so like, and so that's when i get depressed the first thing i tell myself is it's okay yeah. You're just depressed and that happens. You yes, know? And totally. The, um, and, and, and yeah, but the being in that moment. So, um, and when I think about that, uh, Solon, I don't, I don't want to go so far as just to say that it's only by the, the judgments of your community. Right. But, yeah. and, and, and potentially just because communities can make mistakes. But for me, yeah. there's this tension between, delayed gratification and you know living in the moment and it doesn't have to be attention i do think there are ways of yeah. walking that line but uh the notion of hedonism right being right. as happy as you can and it can actually be contrasted with epicureanism right, right. which is very very similar right yeah they both say your own happiness is the ultimate measure but epicureans said um were all about moderation and balance. Mm. And they said that was the route to happiness. And mm. so to say, uh, call mm. no man happy till he's dead. If you, you may be happy in this moment, but if it's heroin induced, right, you yes. might want to wait a little while and see, you know, that that may not be the route to a full, rich and happy life. Right. Um, yeah. Which again is going to be, uh, embedded in yeah. all of the particularities, right? And their relations to each other and not just a single moment. Okay, so the last, maybe the last thing, so just to kind of highlight the in and of itself. So we're going to be talking about this uh, this show. And I think this is good because it helped highlight, I, I think- what I is, think it was really good. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I, but it helps highlight, I think, why we want to talk about it, right? Because yes. it does, there are these- um, universals uh concepts that are present in it but yes. he really does work to highlight the importance of the particularity yeah. and 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 the importance of meaning right yes. and how yeah so the the universal um and the meaningfulness of that which is always embedded in a particular instantiation and, and oddly yeah uh instead of finishing on the appropriate note of kind of tying that together i want to just finish the story of 
um, Aristotle, who's staring at these currents and apparently just took measurements and studied and pondered till he died uh, with a complete um, failing to ever grasp uh. the complexity of these currents, right? And when mm. we dive into these particulars, right, with this cell, you keep digging in and it just keeps getting more complicated. Yes. And um, complexity theory to me is just this uh, humbling moment of saying the thing in and of itself is ultimately going to be inaccessible to me. We're yes. never going to be able to abstract to explain it all. We're never going to be able to dive deep enough to get to it. And, um, and that's kind of this, uh, this experience experience we have of just yeah. being what we are and it's it's the uh and i hope we will talk about this but yeah it's the it's the beauty of both apophasis and cataphasis right apophasis which is the moving into the the darkness of of god yeah. right but of being too i think you could you could say right like that as we move into uh the deeper we go the darker things become, which isn't to say that they're not there, but it's it's actually just a, a recognition that that there's an unknowing, there's an unknowability yes. that you can all is always ahead. Yeah. And cataphasis, which is this idea, like apophasis, is sort of saying that you know to describe God, you describe God by what He is not, right? And so there's you can basically do it forever, right? Because He is not yeah. this and He is not this. Cataphasis is like uh, an accretion of descriptions about what God is with the recognition that you're always failing to describe. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, to me, that's like this uh, irreducibly complex. You can mm -hmm. go infinitely. And, and for cataphasis, it's like the, the idea of God is light. God is light. Right. But it's like mm -hmm. blinding light mm -hmm. because as mm -hmm. you move deeper and deeper into it, uh, you eventually are at the place where you can't know anymore, yeah. but you just keep, you can keep going, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's and, a beautiful kind of life to me. Yeah, totally. I mean, and that, that's, uh, I think both, both Plato and Aristotle in their different ways were both doing that same kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So don't be a sophist. <laughs> so don't be a sophist. Exactly. I mean, it's like, yeah, it may be, maybe, maybe on Tuesdays, Mondays and Tuesdays, you can be a th sophist, but on right. the day when you wake up and you realize I'm not a sophist today, make the most of that day. Yes. Yeah. That's a good way to end this episode. I think. Okay. I think that's great. Yeah. Okay. So if, if anybody wants to, to write in, uh, I honestly haven't checked the, the old account lately. I'm sure that there are hundreds and hundreds of emails um, from you know, like somebody, some sort of prince who'd like to sell me, you know, something. But if you want to write in and and not spam us, uh, the email is subjectsinprocesspodcast at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you. And if anybody wants to tell us which were your favorite episodes, that's always something that I think is uh, helpful for us. And, uh, you know, we are, we are very developmental here. So um, let us know what you liked. Let us know what you liked less. Uh, if there's anything you want us to talk about, uh, just give us ideas. We're always interested. And of course, uh, we have stopped apologizing for how many of these things we get wrong. But if you are ready to educate us, we always we're excited about getting any corrections. Yes, totally. So, 
Okay. Thanks, John. Thank you, Jeff. This was great. Thanks. Yeah. Talk to you later. Bye.